hey, you know what I believe? I believe every single person can make a difference and that we all have something amazing to offer the world. I believe in standing up for what matters and in putting one foot in front of the other. I believe courage is way more important than confidence and I'm addicted to seeing people break through what they once thought they couldn't. And that's why I started this podcast. I want you to believe in yourself. I want you to know that anything's possible. I want you to find the courage to stand up and do your thing. Everything's waiting for you. You just have to believe it's possible. I'm Karen Vaughan. This is the Get Off The Bench podcast. And here is where your courageous life starts. Hey guys, and welcome back to another week of the Get Off The Bench podcast. Hope it's been a great week. Hope you've had a you know, few moments to ha- take some courageous steps and try something new. And, you know, I, I really want to just thank you for hanging in there with me because, you know, this we've started this. This is only our 23rd week, although we have got through 23, which is pretty incredible. And, um, you know, and, and some of the some of the episodes are a little longer than we have ever anticipated, but they're so engaging. So I really thank you. And, you know, I, I can't do this without you guys out there supporting. So I want to thank you for that. And I want to share with you today's guest. She, the, Sandra Pankhurst is just absolutely amazing. So let me tell you about her. A transgender woman, Sandra has lived many lives, rising above adversity, and her remarkable life is a subject of the internationally acclaimed multi-award winning book, The Trauma Cleaner. Sandra, then Peter, was adopted into an abusive family, relegated to a backyard bungalow, malnourished, excluded from family life and escaped home in his teens. Marrying young, he soon realised it was not possible to continue his life as a husband and a father, so he left that life to become Sandra, drag queen, sex worker and a gender reassignment patient in the early 80s. With an enviable work ethic, she went on to become Australia's first female funeral director a trophy wife, and a local government candidate. Sandra is now the CEO of one of Australia's most successful trauma cleaning businesses, transforming the filth and squalor of murder, suicide, drug dens, crime, and mental illness. The idea for her trauma cleaning business emerged when she was a funeral director, as there were no death or crime scene specialist cleaners. Sandra saw a gap in the market and created a business that combined her neat freak, CSI stain-removing genius, with her next-level ability to relate and connect to people in difficult situations, specifically in trauma. With the unique ability to treat her clients with unpatronising dignity and respect, she transforms their properties back to their former glory. An active advocate for aged care rights, disability, mental health and ethics, Sandra has recently been an ambassador for Becoming Colleen, which is a documentary about a woman who transitioned at 82. Sandra is extremely passionate about making a positive impact on the welfare of people of all lifestyles in the aged care and mental health sector. As a public speaker, Sandra does keynotes, panel discussions, interviews and book clubs and has been featured on ABC Radio, Nova 100, SBS, Studio 10 and in The Guardian, Herald Sun, Life Matters and The Australian. Her incredible story reminds us that there can be an after, survival and a next chapter. Wow. So uh, let's head over to the Zoom room and have a chat with Sandra. 
Welcome, Sandra. Welcome to you too, and thank you for having me. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. It's my honour, not yours. It's so good to uh, finally meet you face to face. And yes, we've spoken many times over the phone, but haven't quite got there yet because of COVID. I know. Mm. I know, and it's um, yeah, we would have been seeing you in two days' time, actually, yeah. for the Girls with Hammers conference. We hadn't even told anybody who our special guest was, but uh, now everybody all know. But uh, no, we were um, really, really looking forward to it, and um, yeah, COVID has um, certainly given us a few kicks in the guts all over the place. And it has indeed. It has yeah. indeed. But nothing we can't get over. Nothing lasts forever. That's right. So at least the best, second best thing we can do is uh, have you on here and 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 listen to your story because it's um, it's an amazing, an amazing story. It's uh, I, I can't. I remember the first time, you know, I heard about you and I was kind of like, is this for real? Like, so can can somebody actually have this kind of life? And then I dug further into it, and we'll talk about the book, you know, into the interview. But um, you know, read started to read under all the layers of your life. And, I, you know, I actually haven't finished the book because I've, I've attempted it five or six times and I get another chapter in and how my bloody eyes out, you know, it's, um, it's, and it's, I know that you're, you're, you know, you've come to terms with it. I'm not saying that you accept it. I'm not saying that you're at peace with it, but um, you know, you're just a remarkable, remarkable person because it's it's extreme trauma and I personally can't see how anybody could ever treat a child the way you were treated but we'll we'll get into that further as we go but I, I'm a, you know hats off to you because I, I you just you, you're remarkable and incredibly strong so I truly thank you. truly thank you I think that's where I get my compassion from after seeing how bad things can be I never want that for anyone else no well, we're going to talk about your compassion too, because um, I, some of the things that you do um, and are confronted with, and you've still got this, and have been confronted with some of the um, incidents, and you've still got um, compassion for the human species is, you know, to be honest, it's beyond me. Do you, you know, like, um, I think that a lot of things happen to people and they can never forgive, but you've you've found this level of not only forgiveness, but um you know, really, really nurturing people. So we'll get into that. But um, so, you know, there's a hell of a lot of stuff in the intro and that's just the tip of the iceberg. We haven't even got into the details, but um, give us an overview of your journey and, you know, how you came to be in the trauma cleaning business and, and as well celebrated as one of Australia's most successful CEOs. It's amazing. So tell us that journey. Yeah, it's a story of adversity. My husband at the time, he's since passed away, um, we had a hardware store in Brighton and we're a seven-day-a-week business. I was also a bit psycho all my life, so I was on <laughs> 13 different committees as well and um, loved the limelight, loved everything, ran for local government, was on the mayor's committee, chair president of the Chamber of Commerce, et cetera, et cetera. Anyhow, we had the store for seven years. We kept upgrading, upgrading, upgrading and doing very well for ourselves. But then Bunnings come along and mm. stuffed us. So we had rent of a quarter of a million dollars a year before our outgoings, and that was like 30 years ago. So it's a lot of money. Mm. And um, so before we even had food on the table, we had to find this $250,000 a year for rent and then our bills, et cetera. 
And um, in the end, we decided, look, we can't do this anymore. We called in the liquidators and decided we'd clean it all up and just get out of there. So then I started, because I was so well known, people wanted to keep me employed, etc. <clears throat> so I started a domestic cleaning business called We're Absolutely Fabulous. And our catch cry was that if you want any cleaning done, remember, we're absolutely fabulous. <laughs> and um, so we had that going. Within three months, I had 20 staff. And in those days, you didn't have to pay your workers between jobs. You only had to pay for the time they worked. So out of an eight-hour day, the staff could only really work six hours a day. You're constantly getting, um, I'm not coming in today or Johnny's sick or you know, I can't be bothered today, you know, blah, blah, blah. So mm. I'm working around the clock, keeping this going. And I thought, this is bloody crazy. This is ridiculous. I'm working for nickels and dimes because people, when they get their house cleaned, don't want to pay a lot of money, but they have a high expectation. Yep. And so um, anyhow, I decided to look into the funeral industry because that's where I could see the niche was because prior to having the hardware store, I was a funeral director. Yeah. And... Um, so the funeral director was very interesting because I could see that the police, the fire brigade and the ambulance weren't interested in doing the cleanups. They had their own gig to do. Mm. So I saw this niche market, but I never thought I'd do it. I was a bit up myself, really. And <laughs> I thought, no, 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 no. It's a good job, but not for me. I had a nickname, Mrs Sparkle. So <laughs> like going to these homes was like a culture shock, you know. Yeah. So, um, excuse me. So um, anyhow, I um, then out of adversity, I decided we'd take our first job on through a funeral home that we knew. And this house was absolutely mind-blowing. It was like a metre up off the floor of wine bottles and casks and tins of beer and stuff like that, all empty. Every orifice of the house was covered in them. Uh, we started moving things and rats and mice would be jumping everywhere. So we never knew we'd have to be a wildlife officer as well with it. Wow. And um, <clears throat> it was quite spooky. We were there for 72 hours straight, a friend of mine and I. And um, anyhow, it was really starting to get on us. You know, it was starting to get to the nerves and all this. And then we come to the fifth layer of flooring in the kitchen that was so contaminated that we had to remove that. And I said, Barley Charlie, I'm ringing this guy and getting some more money. Mm -hmm. So even then it was pittance money that I asked for, but he agreed to it. And I thought if it was that bloody easy, I would have charged more. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> anyhow, we did it because I was going to get the place painted, new carpet and all that, and they could have sold it for a mozza. So um, anyhow, um, <clears throat> that all happened and we got out. But on the very last layer of flooring, we had, um, like, it was not only glued to the floor, but it was also riveted to the floor. And so we had to splice it open, pour boiling water over to break down the glue. But then every time we put the, sp the spade underneath it to lift it up, it was like ricocheting on our hands and our hands were like the size of watermelons oh. by the end of it. So we were in pain, we were depressed, we were thinking, my God, I don't think we could do this. I don't think I can do this. But you have a few days off and you realise that you need money, you need to live, you need to go on. And so we just continued from there. 
and hence 30 years later, look at the reward it's been. It has cost mm. me my lungs, but, you know, mm. you live and learn. We didn't have oh in those days as like we do now. So, like, that's the one good thing I could say to my staff, use your PPE because if you don't, you're going to be like me and none of them want to be like me, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a good learning tool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think we, you know, while we while we're here, we'll talk about um what what the trauma cleaning actually is. You know, you mentioned um, you know, your first job taking seventy two hours and you know up to your waist in in bottles and God knows what. And, but it's um you know the for trauma cleaning, we're talking about uh, really really confronting stuff like yeah, you know murder. murder suicide, aggravated burglary, all that sort of stuff that we're involved in. And like some of the scenes can be quite confronting and some of them can be quite mild, you know, but it's still got to be biologically cleaned up so there can be no cross-contamination, infection. People become very um, uh, susceptible to seeing a drop of blood left behind because it just highlights the whole art again for them. So it's always in a minimum of a team of two so that we've got two sets of eyes to check over all the work constantly and uh, we've only ever had one job in the 30 years that we were called back because dots of blood were left on some little perfumery bottles on the side table it's something we didn't look to check in at every nook and cranny but we now do every nook and cranny Mm. and when there's um uh, you you will have you know, uh, it sort of, it, it makes me, I don't know how you do it because it makes my stomach churn a bit, you know, but you go into houses where somebody's been dead, you know, for sometimes weeks, sometimes months. And yeah. the human body, it's not just, not just lying there, it breaks down. and, and It's eats. like an acid. It's like an acid. I've seen mattresses eaten through from the acid. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's pretty mind blowing. Um, we call them Mr. or Mrs. Juicy you know, to get us through the job. And um, we tend to pay a bit of Sherlock Holmes to sort of keep our mind off what we're actually doing but still going through the process because we're like, we're heavily, heavily, heavily trained. You know, we spend a lot of money in training. We have every month or six weeks, we have refresher courses and we go over incidents that we've had throughout the month to make sure that we're keeping our standard up because our catch cries, care, compassion and dignity, but our motto is excellence is no accident. Yeah, so yeah. We, we have to have that. That's how we stand out and stand alone. And I think by one of the things that I do is I employ people from the School of Hard Knocks mainly only because they are more compassionate because they've had these experiences themselves. Yeah. They've had down and out times, they've struggled or whatever, and they might not be the most illiterate, even though some of them surprise you how they grow with the job, yeah. um, but they couldn't get a job, a lot of them, do you know? So mm-hmm. they now um, treat this as, this is my job, I love my job, do you know, and they're very good at it. And the one thing that I keep hearing back from clients is, your staff are so lovely. I go, I know I'm blessed. I'm absolutely blessed. You well, know. I don't think it's necessarily blessed. You know, I think it's got a lot to do with you too. I think that, you, you you know, you will be teaching them compassion and, you know, the fact that you've wrapped your arms around them too makes them want to do their best. And I think that's beautiful. Yeah. You know, you've got to take some of the credit for, you know, 
having amazing stuff. I think initially I might have, but I've got Trudy Brown now running the business now since COVID because I can't go in because I'm yeah. susceptible. And she's doing an amazing job. And probably if I really said it, she's probably doing a better job than I was. Not so much on the care compassion, but she's very good at that. Mm. Um, but um, on the administrative side of things, she's far better brain than I'll ever be. So, well, know. not all of us love the administrative stuff. Well, do we? you know, you're good at some things and you're not good at other things. So you yeah. have to learn when to drop these things off and when to be good at what you're good at. And I think that's the strength of what we can do. If we all pick our good points and things like that and we work towards those goals, that's how we can better ourselves as people and as a community and as yeah. a company. Yep, I agree. I agree. Um, I just want to say one more thing about the uh, the uh, trauma cleaning before we move back to uh, the earlier part of your life. You a lot of it. Some of it is, um, you know, murder and death and that kind of stuff. But you also clean, you know, squalors. So you you also go into houses where there's pet hoarding and and yeah. normal just everyday hoarding. And that's actually I, I've read you know, your stories and, and you say that that's far more mentally draining because a lot of the time you're dealing with mental illness and it's a, it's a lot to work around to work with the person to get them to yep. allow you in in the first place. But, you know, it's a, frontal, it's a frontal lobe problem. It is a mental health condition. It's been registered as a mental health condition now. And you've got to be very cunning because they're very cunning. You know, mm -hmm. like we've had families that have come to us and just devastated as to what they found when their mother or their fathers died. They had no idea what the house was like because they'd say, come on, mum, we'll pick you up Sunday and we'll go for lunch. You know, this might be once a month mm. or something. And I go, oh, no, darling, I've got to go down to the post or some way. I'll meet you there. Yep. And then when it's time to go back, oh, no, the doctor said it's really good for me to walk, so I want to walk, and I'm going to pop in and see Mrs. So-and-so on the way home. So they don't see any of it because they've locked themselves away. They're very, very mm -hmm. cunning. And other people, they just don't think that they've got a problem. They think wow. that this is quite normal living. And really with the smell and everything, there's a wet hoard, there's a dry hoard. So a dry hoard would be just keeping lots of things excessive amount of things in a place and a wet hoard would be rubbish and shit and vomit mm. and all that sort of stuff just left in the house. The smoke detectors have knocked off the roof because they let off the methane with all the rubbish in the house and everything. So they live and they don't smell it. You know, whereas mm. we go in and we smell it straight away, they don't smell the smell, mm. you know. It's been, I've seen somewhere people have had rubbish so high that, you know, you've talked about this, um, where people are walking across the top of the rubbish and there's, and there's handprints. Hand all over the ceilings and then down the wall to get them down safely. Yeah. You know, like it's mind-blowing. There's such fire hazards and everything like that too. You know, and this is why the, the um, I think the government should take a more active role in funding some of these cleans for health conditions. It's affecting the neighbours with the rats and vermin that are around. It's affecting their health. We had an incident where um, <clears throat> a woman, she wasn't quite 100% with it and she didn't know how to report her problems to her housing manager. And, um, excuse me, and uh, anyhow, she'd had a few sewage overflows, she'd mm -hmm. had a few floods and she just didn't know how to handle that. Mm -hmm. 
Anyhow, we got called in to have a look at this job and it was putrid, absolutely putrid. But as we started, she was resistant the whole way. She was fighting tooth and nail. She didn't want this done at all because she felt like she was dying anyhow. So she didn't see the need for it. And she didn't want to be disrupted from where she was to go to somewhere else or to have the house emptied out. Mm. And um, so anyhow, um, we got to a certain stage of the house and then we started, we could open up wardrobes and things like that and move furniture away from the walls because there was so much rubbish there and the stench was just unbelievable. And um, anyhow, uh, we noticed that there was black, black, black mould there. And um, so we had to contaminate the site, call mm. in the owners of the property and just say, look, this is contaminated. You can't possibly, the place has to be rebuilt virtually on the inside. And um, so anyhow, they moved her very, very unhappy, very, very discontent about the whole situation. But it was six months later, they'd put her into like a, a retirement village thing. And um, she, she sent word back that got back to us that thank God we were there. We were like angels to her wow. because she thought she was dying. She couldn't breathe. It was all the black mould. Mm. She now has her children visit her. She has her grandchildren visit her and she feels like she's alive again. Oh, but see, wow. it took something so drastic for mm. her that she couldn't let go. She couldn't, was the familiar with her. It was a comfortable pair of shoes. So she needed to be able to... Um, see the other side before she could appreciate what she was getting. Mm. Oh, it's so sad, isn't it? You know, it is. Some... The conditions people live under, and like, and we've gone to um, VCAT with job, or not us particularly, because that's not our gig, um, but the people with the properties, they go to VCAT and then the judges say that they're entitled to live how they want. How can you do that to another mm. human being? Mm. I don't find that right. Yes, they're entitled to live how they want, but not when it's filth and disease and disaster. You know, what, how is that having respect for another human being? And particularly if they've got mental health issues that they're, that they're just not able exactly. to, to A, recognise that, that, that they're living they in the an help. undesirable. Yeah, yeah. They, and, and, they, and even if they do recognise it, they don't know where to start, a lot of these people. And it's, that's really, really sad. And I think that the way you go in there, and I've, I've seen you you know, on numerous TV programs and that, and, and your love for these people and your compassion. And, you, and you're just, I th think somewhere I heard you say, well, you know, it could be one of us tomorrow. Yes, and it can be. We've done doctors and medicos and board of directors and all this sort of stuff. And you think they've been high flyers in their life mm. and something's triggered something and their life has become a disaster. Yeah. We did a doctor in South Yarra many, many years ago, and he'd had a second wife. Children hated her, and um, but he loved her. Mm. And um, there was artwork worth mega, mega millions in this house, stacked up against the wall probably 10 at a time and worth yeah. unbelievable amounts of money. Books worth hundreds of thousands of dollars stacked up everywhere. It was quite a mess, and it was cat shit and piss all over it. Oh. You know, and like you think, by the grace of God, they've got all this money and yet the children would only allow 
one room to be done because when he was dead, that was it. She was out and they were getting along. People are so cruel. People yeah, are so they, cruel. they are. Yep. You know, yep. when it comes to money, you've got to watch mm. your back. Yeah, and you, you, you really hope that you're never going to be in that situation. But, well, I don't know how you do it. I think that, um, you know, I'm hearing you you struggling for air now and the chemicals of, um, you know, have uh, really buggered you up and... Um, which is which is a an absolute shame, but uh, the the love and compassion that you've given to people is incredible. And you know, going back on your story, I, as I said earlier, I don't know how you've got this love and compassion. You're a better person than me because you know I, I think I'd struggle to to um, accept humans again after some things that you've been through. But when you were um, a child, you were adopted and ended up living with a couple in um, West Footscray, I think yeah. it was. Um, now, how did you come to be adopted? You know, that's that's. I think that's a part of your story that seems to be missing. Right. What it was, it was that um, my supposed mother um, had had a daughter and then now having another child, which was a boy, and that boy died in childbirth and they were told that they couldn't have any more children. So they went through the Catholic Church and to get another child and hence here I come. And um, then five years later, they had another son. And then two years later, they had another son. And so at seven years of age, I was told that I was no longer wanted. Mm. It was a big mistake. And um, I got a couple of years to live in the house with them. And then after that, I had to live in a bungalow that was built out the back and not to be in the house after 4.30, not to bring friends home, not to do anything like that. And as a child, all you wanted was to be loved. You don't know anything mm. different. And so <clears throat> we used to have family gatherings probably once a month or something like that. And that was the only time on a Sunday that I was allowed in the house. And I have very fond memories of just hanging on to my mother's leg. And I must have been in the pain of the ass to her, but that's all I needed. I just needed to, to belong. We all want to fit mm. into something. We all want to believe in something as there. But it was never meant to be. And um, you live and learn from that experience, you know. But you don't become bitter and twisted by it. You have to just learn from it. And I don't know where I got this knowledge so young. I was a bit of a rebel as a child because I was always looking for help or look screaming for help. I used to go to the nunnery after school and do odd jobs so I could get some food and things like that. And um, I'd get a cup of tea and a bit of cake or something like that in the afternoon. And then at night I'd go home and I'd pinch a can of food out of the kitchen and go back and eat it in my room. And um, one of my chores in those days was to light the briquette hot water service and we had a, a copper a, a copper to do the washing in. And anyhow, one day I got sidetracked at the nunnery and I was late home and I had to light this hot water service while I was panic-stricken, absolutely panic-stricken because I knew the copper sticks, I'd be getting a belting with those if I hadn't done it. And um, anyhow, I put some motor fuel in it, burnt the laundry down. And the laundry was always at the back of the house because of that style of home in the day. And uh, the toilet was always on the outside and there's a gully trap. And that was the only way I could wash myself in the gully trap and use the outside toilet. So anyhow, when the laundry got burnt down, I didn't get into trouble for burning the laundry down. I got into trouble for all the tins of food that I'd squashed and put in between because in those days we only had masonite so high up and then the rest of it was just beams, 
you know what I mean? And so I used to steam, put all the canned tins down there, crushed buggery, and then they found all those, and that's what I got into trouble for. Well, I could never quite understand that. How was I meant to live? How was I supposed to um, get on when I had no food? Mm. But you got you got belted for more than that. Like you got belted continually as yeah. a as a young they, boy because they would. We had like a a driveway down the side of our house, and they're all like separate little terraces, wooden terraces in a row. And um, they used to drive in around the back into the car. And if he reversed the car in crooked, I knew I'd get a hiding that night. Oh. So it was like a nervous wreck to see how he backed the car in as to how I was going to be treated. That's how I lived for a long time. And when I was 13, they asked me to, um, um, to paint the outside of the house because they were going away on a family holiday to Tasmania. And um, I weren't allowed to go with them, of course. And they said, if you paint the outside of the house, we'll bring you back something you really, really want. Well, I was so lonely. All I wanted was a little transistor radio to keep me company. Mm. And um, anyhow, when they come back from there, not only had I painted the house, but I went up to the West Footscray YMCA, which used to be like a big cutout in the ground, and they were filling it all up and turning it into a tip to make a football oval out of it. And um, anyhow, I used to bring bricks home and I'd do the path. I was always very handy with my hands. So I sculptured this garden bed around the garden and all that and trimmed it all up and made it look good. And um, anyhow, when they got back, they brought me a plastic pair of cufflinks in the shape of Tasmania. I was devastated. Until oh. today, I have to have a TV on in any room of the house constantly to keep me company. Oh, that's... And that's something that's, I can't quite get over. Did, didn't the neighbours ever hear you um, being belted? And That's an extra, an interesting point because after all this was said and done and I'd left home and I'd transitioned and everything like that, I thought I must catch up with Arnie Dot because we used to call everyone Auntie. Mm-hmm. And so Arnie Dot lived next door to us. Her um, daughter's bedroom was directly opposite our kitchen window. And uh, I said to Arnie Dot one day, I was all decked up in my finery and went to go and see her and I told her the situation on the phone first so that she wouldn't get a shock or whatever. Very, very gracious, very, very gracious. And I said to her, Arnie Dot, I said, "Um, can you tell me whether this is true or it's all in my mind? I said, because I've got no one to validate what happened to me. And she said to me, well, let me put it to you like this, dear. She said, Pammy, her daughter, she used to say, Pammy used to say to me, oh, mummy, they're at it again. And she'd say, just turn your transistor up a little bit louder and you won't hear it. Oh. And that's all she could say. And that was all the validation that I needed. I was devastated, but it's what I needed at the same time. And back then people didn't interfere? No one didn't. interfered. And I had my grandmother living across the road and my auntie two doors up. It's a different world. It's a different world. But unfortunately, it still happens today. Some kids, yeah. you know, just cop that. And I, I can't, I, I can't understand it. Look, I, you know, I try to be um, understanding of it, but I just think that the, how can anybody hurt a kid? I just, I just. I think. have no tolerance for child abuse. No tolerance no. at all. No. So you talked then about transitioning, but prior to that, when you were a little boy, you, um, 
were getting a lot of hidings because your adopted father used to think that you were too feminine, you know, just think that you were a... I didn't see it, but he obviously saw it. And that, that was a trigger for him and didn't didn't like it. I think so. I think so. And plus, well, the story that I was told at the time was that, and it's been changed now because I know who my real mother is, um, and that's another story. And um, anyhow... The story at the time was that my father had an affair with my mother's sister. She died in childbirth and that's I was the representation of that child. And that's why I thought I was hated so much. Mm. But as it turns out, it's not the case at all. I was adopted out by a young girl that was told she couldn't have a child, could, wasn't allowed to keep the child. I've since um, spoken to her, not on the phone, I've spoken to the Adoption Information Services and I'm a member of Vanish, which is now an organisation that Julia Gillard set up to, for adopted kids to be able to find their parents. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, so I, post-COVID, will be doing fundraising and all that sort of stuff and how kids that are like test tube kids can find out who their parents are if they want to and all this sort of stuff yeah. because there is a connection you need to have. Mm. And um, anyhow, um, yeah, so Vanish sort of um, put me in the loop with this woman and she was going to be really cooperative and everything like that, but then she started getting angina attacks and getting very forgetful and falling over and all sorts of things. And I said, stop it, stop it, stop it. I said, she suffered enough when she was younger. She doesn't need to have to relive this again now. Yeah. Her children don't know. If she wants to keep the secret, that's in touch to her, but it's not my place to put burden on her at yeah. 88 or 89 years of age to um, have this problem now. I, I yeah. would have felt that I would be at fault. So yeah. I just pulled the pin on the whole lot. Oh, wow. What a story. And that's not even half of it. We've only just, we're still on the... Uh, I know. Um, I can talk behind the leg of a chair, I can tell no, you. It's, 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 a, it's amazing. Like, it's, it's so fascinating. It's so um, so gut-wrenching and heartbreaking, but it's, it's fascinating and it's just your evidence, you know, that people can live through extraordinary things. But so you ended up getting booted out when you were 17 and... Yeah. Found a... My father wanted me to have a crew cut. My mother was out of cake decorating classes and I have a chart for wanting to do that, but I've never bothered to do it. <laughs> and um, and I used to cook a lot, but I don't cook these days. I'm, I buy pre-made meals and just heat them up. I'm too lazy on my own. <laughs> and sometimes because if I don't feel so well, I get too tired, then I don't eat at all. So I'm better off to have the pre-paid meals <laughs> made up from a delicatessen I go to mm. and I've got lovely meals, European meals that I have every night and all I have to do is top up a glass of wine to go with it and I'm good to go. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> That's resourceful. It is indeed. It is indeed. Uh, yeah, and so and so you got your, a crew cut, you were getting kicked out. I weren't getting a crew cut, hella high water, and so I got thrown out that night. And um, I rang my best friend who was in the book. Her father's in the book at the church where I got married. Yep. And um, you can see Mr McMahon at the back and he's the one that originally gave me a job and everything. And um, anyhow, um, they took me in for six months because they would have to leave. They'd planned that around the world holiday, he and his wife. And um, I used to go there every weekend on a Saturday to see Mary. 
and Mary and I had to do the chores of the house. Like we all had carpet squares in the rooms and all the woodwork had to be polished all the way around them. And so we used to do those chores. We used to giggle and laugh and have so much fun together. And then we'd go out and play or go to the movies or go somewhere like that. And she was the only friend I really had. And um, so anyhow, um, we still connect, kept the friendship. She's a teacher down at Geelong. And, um, you know, in the book, it states that I don't hold friends for very long. Well, that's not quite true because I have a lot of, you know, 30, 40 year friendships that I've hung on to over the years because they mean something to yeah. me. I don't hang on to the meaningless crap. Do you know what I mean? I'm not into meaningless crap. It's got to mean something or forget. And so you, you got booted out and everything else and then um, you got married when you were still Peter. Yes. Well, Peter's a fictitious name, but I never ever say who I really am. Yeah. So anyhow, um, I got introduced to this woman on a train with one of my work colleagues at ACI Spotswood. And um, she was looking for a place to live and I was looking for a place to live. And so we decided that we'd rent a place together. And um, anyhow, uh, we got this place at Newport in Melbourne and got there and that like, this is my bedroom. And this is your bedroom. Never the two shall meet, you know. And um, that was okay. And a couple of months down the line, she came into my bedroom with breakfast in bed one Sunday morning. And um, one thing led to another and we ended up doing the business. Well, I was so naive that I thought, oh, this if I can do it with her, well, maybe I'm meant to marry her. Because I was dumb, dumb as shit, I can tell you. So um, anyhow, we, we decided we'd get married because I didn't want to be different. I wanted to be normal. More than anything, I wanted to be normal. I just wanted to fit in with life and go ahead. I had a good job. I was um, running the laboratory, John Darling's flour mills at the time and responsible to no one except Bert Bowden in Sydney. And um, he loved the job that I was doing. And no matter what I've done in life, I've put 150% into everything I do. If you have a problem with me, you have a problem with me, but you'll never have a problem with my workability. Mm. And so um, anyhow, they wanted me to stay. I decided, no, I can't. I need to go and venture afield. Not having any plans, not having any ideas of what the hell I was going to do, which led me into a bit of a deprived life there for a while. But um you try these things, you do these things and, you know, hopefully things will work out better. In my case, they did work out better. So mm. um, we got married. We had two children, nine months and a week apart. It was like rabbit season. Wow. Yeah, every time I touched there was something happening. <laughs> and, um, so um, it was like pretty wild and I couldn't cope after the second child. And that's when I started thinking there's got to be a better way for me because I could have quite easily been a child abuser uh, because the frustration of it was getting the better of me and I could have picked that child up and threw it across the room and that's not in my nature and that's mm. where I knew I had to get out. I had to go. This could not be. I was not going to be that. That was totally against what I stand for and um, so I left the very last day I left the house, nothing had ever been said to the children in any shape or form. And um, as I was at the front door, my eldest boy turned around and said to me, bye-bye, Daddy, and that broke my heart for many, many, many years. I couldn't celebrate Christmases, birthdays or anything like that. 
um, I went into a bit of a nosedive with not having my children because I loved my children. I just couldn't live with them. Mm. So, um, you know, things have changed now. Um, I've since seen the kids, but there are problems with that. You know, there's a lot of deep mm. water going in under there. There's some mental health issues and um, it's not the best of situations. Mm. And you've got a, I see you've got a little, a picture of them as little, little I kids. Do. I have it in my bedroom. It's the best frame I could possibly get. And I have those children in there and I see it every night. And um, if only we probably could have gone back to those days, but it wasn't meant to be. So no good crying on spilt milk. It's what it is and how it is. And yes, they might not have had their father with them at the time, but there's a lot of other kids that don't have their father too. And you don't need to um, dwell on shit as much as mm. they're dwelling on it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I have compassion and understanding for them that there's a time they need to grow up also. Yeah, yeah. And it's really hard because, you know, you say that you were so frustrated, but part of that, do you think that part of that was because you didn't feel right in your body? Like you felt that there was another life for you and, and or was it just yeah, you I just, just couldn't identify? It it. I didn't know what it was. I remember my first experience going to a gay bar and it was at the Dover in um, North Melbourne, I think, opposite the World Trade Centre and uh, World Trades Hall or something like that. And um, you go up these stairs and, of course, um, I hadn't been out for years, so I didn't know what this go was. And um, anyhow, the I go out there at 6 o'clock at night, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and uh, there's no one there except the bar staff. And they said, oh, you're new here, aren't you? I said, yes, I am. And they said, oh, we don't start till 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. Oh, so I went downtown, coffeeed myself to death, and then come back about, well, oh, 10, 30, 11 o'clock or something, and um, as you walk up the first flight of stairs, you're confronted by these two doors and then you go into like a reception area and there's another two doors and then you go into the main hotel and that's where you pay your money and stuff. And um, anyhow, it was the first time I'd got in there and then got into the second doors and just looked ahead of me and there was all these men with men, women with women, and I was shell-shocked absolutely shell shock. Well, the table directly to the left of me turned around and said, oh, this is your first time here, isn't it? So I copped it twice that night. And I said, yes, sit down with us. We'll keep you friendly and we'll keep you comfortable and blah, blah, blah. So I developed friends with them. And um, anyhow, it was over the, a, a, a while, a year or so that I heard about hormones. And like, as I said, I was pretty dumb. And the I'd seen drag shows but they all had big chokers around their neck and their tits were rock hard. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this must be plastic all down here. And so anyhow, um, I was uh, looking at that and then I overheard a conversation about having hormones and developing breasts and all this. And it's like a light went on in my head. And I thought, mm. oh, wow. So I had to find out more about that conversation. And then it was a matter of tracking down a doctor that would give me the hormones. And so I rang around, no, 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 no. Finally got one in Elgin Street, Halton. Anyhow, he said to me that, um, come in and we'll have a chat and we'll see how you feel about things. Now, he sat me down, very gracious, very generous man. 
And uh, he said to me, you realise that by taking these, you probably could take 20 to 30 years off your life. He said, because they destroy the body, you know. And I said, well, you know, I could walk out of here now, get run over by a Mack truck and still not have done what I want to do. So I sort of figure I need to follow what I feel is right. Mm. And so he said to me, well, if you feel that way in a week's time, come make an appointment and come back. I said, well, I'll make the appointment now then, shall I, for next week? So anyhow, I made the appointment for next week and um, we talked about things and went on the hormones. Then I got a little bit greedy, so I started doctor shopping because I knew a little bit more then. So I was having the hormones with him and I was having the injections with another doctor. That didn't sort of help things too much because from someone that's got... I'm tall, I'm five foot ten. So if I'm I'm thin at the moment, but at that stage I went up to 17 and a half stone. I was like a brick wow. house on the move. And so people you ask me what football team I played for, <laughs> all this shit, you know. And um, anyhow, it took me years to lose the weight and get accustomed to it. But I never regretted it, you know. And there's some other girls that started at the same time as me. They went off, on, off, on, off, on. I stayed through all the way time. And um, I'm glad I did because I feel much more content, much more happier the person I am now than I ever was before. Yeah. And so yeah. it was the right decision for me. Yep. Yeah. And then you had the, the full surgery. I and did at the Queen Vic Hospital. Yeah. yeah, at the Clinic Hospital. And um, anyhow, I remember after the first surgery, because it's a two-stage surgery, because the first one they realign all your stomach and everything like that and they cut out all the meat and potatoes and um, they realign your stomach so you've got a vaginal passage to go through. So everything has to be bolted up higher. That's very painful. I don't know whether they still do it these days like that or not or whatever. And um, anyhow, um, I said to them, oh, look, I feel like I want to go for a walk. Is that all right? And they assumed, because I had a catheter and everything, that I'd just be going for a walk up and down the hospital. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I had grander plans than that. So I wanted to go shopping. So I bought <laughs> the nurses' flowers and chocolates and I bought myself new outfits and bought some new music and new shoes and all sorts of things. <laughs> and so come back and... I was on the third floor of the Queen Vic Hospital. But as I was going out, that's right, I, if you remember back in the old days there, they used to have all the um, Greek church, um, Catholic shops all in a row. Yeah, yeah. And between yeah. each one of them, there was like two foot of mirror in every one. <laughs> and I caught the, glim- the glimpse of this tall, blonde woman who looked fabulous to me. And I thought, oh, she looks lovely. And then a twig that was me. And I was on such a bloody high that I, I couldn't help myself. So I was in and out of Myers and David Jones and all that. <laughs> come back and still on a high. Decided I'm not waiting for the lift. I'll fly up the three flights of stairs. Oh, my God. And um, go up the three flights of stairs and I go to the nurse's ward. Hey, I've got this for you. This. What the hell have you done? You risked the whole program going out. You don't know what you could have done ripped your stitches out, anything like that, blah, blah, blah. So with that, I had about 30 consultants all around me <laughs> and giving me the drill. And um, anyhow, I said to them, look, I'm fine. I'm really, really happy, you know. And um, they said, well, you you know, you've threatened the program, blah, 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 blah. Well, anyhow, about half an hour after all the dust had settled down from that, I did develop this insane pain. 
And mm. I didn't want to complain because I thought, fuck, they'll shoot me. And <laughs> anyhow, um, I decided I weren't going to say anything. I hang on to the pain, hang on to the pain, hang on to the pain, till the pain got so bad. It wasn't just the pain in my body, it was the pain in my head. And mm. I, I felt like I, I couldn't even express what I needed, but basically I felt like I needed a good shit because of all the enema, um, mm. um, you know, stuff that clogs you up and everything when you're having operations. Yeah. And um, anyhow, I couldn't get my words out and um, I went over to the window and I was going to throw myself out the window because it had got so bad, but the window would mm. only open so high. And with that, I just slid down the wall, hysterically crying. And this nurse came up to me and she said, I know exactly what's wrong with you. So she gave me an enema. Half an hour later, I was good to go. And anyhow, then I had to go back into the second stage of the operation. And they said to me, how are you feeling, Sandra? I said, good, thank you. And um, they said, um, I said, there's just one thing that I want to say to you before we go any further. I said, how can I possibly thank you for what you've done? I said, I've caught my glimpse in a mirror when I was walking down the street and I know I shouldn't have done that. I said, but it was the most positive spark that I had. And um, I said, I needed it. And they said, well, just don't turn up in three months' time like all your mates with a drug overdose. Oh, wow. Was very learning thing for me because there's no mm. way known I could kill myself. I've only got to walk past a mirror and I go, hi, sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it so much. And so, yeah. So then, um, you ended up being a um a drag queen in a strip club. Oh God, the things that I've done. What a lot. We used to do drag shows at night, but they were like we were like um oh just seedling money do you know what I mean it was a yeah. show and they were making mega money and we were making pittance and so we had to work on the streets of you know do stripping and stuff like that or also do um prostitution during the day to make our living worthwhile and um so anyhow we did that and um it wasn't the best job in the world to do this the prostitution or anything but, you know, you've got to do what you've got to do. You've got to survive. You've got to pay your rent. You've got to pay your mm. electricity, all this sort of stuff, and live a, a quality life, you know. this. The one thing I really would like to have found out from my mother, what sort of quality life they have, because there's a certain quality that I demand. And mm. where do I get it from? Yeah. You, know I mean? yep. you don't yep. just get a class of his own because people can have money but they don't have any class or they don't mm. have any style you know and I just sort of think where did I get mine from I'm very blessed to have that you know it's a big it's a big um question that nurture nature debate isn't yeah, it no, really it is. really it is. big yeah. one yeah but the one thing I did find out that the whole family suffer from lung conditions really yeah so I thought that's interesting yeah that's interesting but that's all I've found out Wow, so maybe the chemicals are only half to blame for that. Could but... very well be, but I did give myself a good dose. Yeah, I yeah, did give yeah, a good dose. And so when you were on the streets, you um, and and I'm, you know, this is a blessing, although it was terrible. You were were attacked, but it sort of then it sort of shoved you off into a much better direction, you know. And well, actually, it wasn't on the streets that I did that. <clears throat> what happened is that 
I'd come back from Kalgoorlie working over there for some time, made a lot of money, a lot of money, and um, come back here. And I was working in a brothel in Clayton, Clayton Oakley, maybe around that area, and uh, was sitting there doing the night shift, a girl, Karen and I, uh, Kay and I, and um, I was sitting with my back, say, like to here, and there was a hallway behind me and the front door was just over there. And next minute we heard this, um, the lights went off and I'm sitting there rolling a joint, right? And Kay was getting up dressed for her, from her last mug. And um, anyhow, and next minute this noise, it was like a Mack truck come through the front door. It was the most intimidating sound I'd ever heard in my life. And before I knew it, the lights were on, my head was being grabbed like that and Kay was screaming, absolutely screaming. And um, anyhow, um, he come in and he had me, we had to strip off, both of us had to strip off and he played around for ages there. And then he took us to a vacant block of land across the road. And um, so anyhow, we just envisaged we were walking to our death and we were scared, absolutely scared. Mm -hmm. So he had us there for quite a few hours there. And um, anyhow, after a while, I thought, I reckon I, can, I could do something to this guy. So I whispered as ever so softly to Kay and I said, I'll grab him by the balls. You run and get help. So I grabbed him and squeezed him as hard as I possibly could. And he did not even flinch. Wow. He did not make a sound. He just laughed like a crazy man. <gasps> and with that, I just panicked, absolutely panicked. And um, then I started running and having asthma. I kept falling over and all this. And he was just laughing like a crazy guy. So anyhow, I get back there and then I run to um, get my purse because money was my gold in those days. And I went and hid that in the back room of the house. And then as I look up the house to see how safe I am, the lights come on again and he's looking at me and I'm looking at him. I oh. shit myself. I managed to get a towel around me by this time. And I went outside and the so-called security dog was giving me up where I was hiding. And he come out still laughing this crazy laugh and then another mug pulled into the site. Anyhow, um, I said to him, help me, help me, help me. He just took off like blue lightning. And I thought, oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So I started to walk up the road to the other brothel that was up the road and I'm crying and crying and I'm knocking on the door. Please let me in. Please let me in. They wouldn't let me in. But by the grace of God, just as I was walking out of the place hysterical, the cops come around the corner and they said, are you the girl that rang us? And I knew, well, it wasn't me, it was the madam at the house because I'd rang her and abused the shit out of her. And um, anyhow, um, I said, yes, yes, yes. They said, get inside. I said, they won't let me in. He put the siren on and he said, you let her in, we're coming back for her. So anyhow, I went in there, they wouldn't speak to me, wouldn't anything at all, you know, blah, blah, blah. It was all very bizarre. Anyhow, um, they come back interviewed me but you know in those days we used to get belted by the cops for being in drag and all this sort of stuff mm. they were the most generous guys and so well-mannered and respectful I couldn't believe what I was getting here I am a prostitute 
transgender and um, I'm screaming for help, you know, but they looked after me all the way. Fantastic. But that was the the blessing out of the whole situation because then mm. I realised that I was actually better than that. I could do more. That's when I started mm. looking for straight work, got straight work, and it sort of led me to where I am now. So, you know, mm. if nothing lasts forever. And if something bad, there's always something good that happens. So if we work on that philosophy in life and believe in yourself, we can achieve yeah. anything we want. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Powerful as your mind. Um, that led to the next story of my working career. Yeah, which was the funeral parlour. Well, first of all, was the um, it was the dry, Shield Dry Cleaners, and then from Shield Dry Cleaners, that was only four hours a day, and then I moved to Black Cabs on the radio doing the night shift there. But I used to get into trouble all the time for talking to the drivers. But I just <laughs> loved it because it, we used to go Mac one to Mac two, Mac one to Mac two such and such an address, drop off at such and such, blah, blah, blah. And that's all you could say. But I used to like to talk to them because they were out on their own and sometimes they were a bit scared or whatever. And so yeah. we used to chat a lot and I'd get into trouble all the time. Sandra, you're not allowed to talk on the radio. You're not allowed to talk on the radio. But they like it. I used to get flowers sent in, chocolate sent in, good <laughs> luck cards and all this sort of stuff, you know. And but they wouldn't let me talk on the radio. In the end, I got the shits with that and I said, no, fuck this, I'm not doing this anymore. You know, if I can't be there to help them, I'm keeping them awake, keeping them safe, and you yeah. can't see the value in that. What, what am I here for? So yeah. um, anyhow, I left there and still not knowing what I was going to do. I'm a bit of a tripper. And, um, <laughs> and then I saw this ad for a funeral director, W.D. Rosenson. And so I wanted that job, hello high water. I could see this was a need to help people when they're really struggling. Yeah, and yeah. so um, I, I hassled them for six months till I got the job and I really needed the job by the end of that stage, I could tell you. And um, got the job, absolutely loved it to death. It was my chance of getting the families involved. My mm. way of seeing a funeral being conducted is that every member that comes to that funeral is a close person to that person that's died. And they all need to take a part of that funeral so that they're all getting on a high and getting emotional and then they can get back on with their life. If they don't reach the emotional high, they can stagger for years coming to terms with the death. So it was like conducting a play to me to get people all involved. And I was to get them all involved by saying to the family, this particular, um, I forget what you call them now, but the flowers for the grave. I said, could, do you, would you mind if we asked the people who sent them that we could pull it apart and give everyone a flower so they can all contribute to put a flower on the coffin or something like that? Mm. Oh, yeah, that's lovely. That's lovely. So anyhow, we would do that and everyone would get involved and it was ended up being a really nice, warm uh, memorial. And um, so, I, you know, I used to get praise uphill, down, dale. One day I had to go to head office at the Milne Group to um, learn computer studies. Well, that was a waste of time. But the guys took over my funeral. And so as soon as I got back, I said, okay, it's my checklist. Have you done this? Have you done that? Oh, we didn't do your stupid flower bit and didn't do this and didn't do that. Oh. I was rope on. I got the manager's door. I slid it. It was a rolling door. I slid it. I said, we need to talk. <laughs> running back, being backward. And um, we need to talk. I said, 
I leave strict instructions for how things are to be done because that's what I've told the clients will be done. And now you've mm. let them down because these boys don't want to play the games. I said, and they're not games, they're emotional connections that they need to have. And mm. so anyhow, no one ever, ever went on one of my funerals again. And so, but that's in the same token, I met George, my husband there because his wife died. And so um, people would say to me, how'd you meet your husband? Buried his wife. <laughs> joke, really. But we just play it up. Yeah. Um, anyhow, but he was a very good guy. He he was from the old school. He would pull out the chair, the seat. He would walk on the right side of the curb. He was very respectful, very full of manners and everything. And I remember one day we'd lived together for about six months or something. And then he said to me, we want to get married. I want you to travel the world with me because he was the... Um, export manager for um, something rubber in um, Cheltenham. And um, anyhow, um, I thought, oh, shit, what have I got myself into now? I'll have to tell him the whole story, you know, because I legally can't get married. So anyhow, if I use my passport, that'll be my friend Pat. She rings always at the wrong time, so whatever. (laughs) And um, anyhow... um, I said to him, look, I have to go and see my doctor and I have to say, you know, find out a few things. Oh, you're not dying, are you? No, I'm not dying. I'm not dying. I just have to get a few things back straight so I can give you your answer on whether we can get married or not. So anyhow, I went to the doctor and I said to him, what the hell am I going to do? What the hell am I going to do? He said, well, don't tell him you've had a sex change. He said, that's very cold and not classy. He said, tell him you've had gender reassignment. Anyhow, I get out and he says to me, well, well, I said, no, no, I'm not telling you until I get to my favourite spot. My favourite spot was at the end of Charman Road in Cheltenham and Beach Road. There was a little parking spot. I used to go there and sort all my woes out after looking at the water. And uh, so anyhow, we went to this spot and we're probably there about minuscule amount of time and George said come on come on tell me what's going on tell me what's going on and I said how I present myself is not really how I am oh you don't want to be a lesbian do you and I thought it's going to get harder than I thought (laughs) and um, I said to him no no I said well how I appear is not how I always have appeared And, like, I was younger and prettier those days. And I said, um, I had to be surgically enhanced to be the person I am now. I weren't born this way. Well, it just went dead silent. And I was waiting for a smack in the mouth because that would have happened on a few occasions. Anyhow, it might have been 10 seconds or something, but I, impatient me, went, well. And he said to me, well, I met Sandra. I fell in love with Sandra and I'm going to marry Sandra. Now, the wow. first time ever I'd had total acceptance from somebody in my whole life. Mm. I was ingratiated by that. I was caught up in the warm and fuzzies of it all and blah, blah, blah. And so hence we got married and um, there you go. So we wow. had years of marriage and he died of um, few a few things. He had problems in himself. Mm. He's a very good man. And you don't want anyone now. You've Oh God, no. I love I had lived on my own for so long. 
I've got my dog over there I love, Moe Shandon. She's beautiful. She keeps me company. And um, I'm so set in my ways. I do what I want, when I want, how I want. Mm. I go where I want. I get home when I want. It's a freedom. Yeah. freedom. And I'm not giving that up for anything. You know, I don't mm. need a partner to make me feel complete. You know, yeah. I do miss the companionship sometimes of having someone or someone to hold or talk to, but I certainly don't miss the sexual side of things. That doesn't do mm. anything for me. I'm not interested. <laughs> I'm not a sexual being. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and at some point in your life you've got to get over ah, that too. Like you've got to get too old for that. Yeah. Like, come on. <laughs> Can't push marshmallow down the plug, Ola. <laughs> Because <laughs> you're so graphic. Yeah, I can see everything you're saying. It's wonderful. <laughs> That's awesome. And then the um, so then you've had this um book written about you, which is uh, as it's been booming. It's, it's been amazing, absolutely amazing. It's going worldwide. Yeah, uh, been very cathartic for me. It's given me the opportunity to accept myself for myself. Um, I'm very happy with it. Um, it's given me a new confidence that I never knew I would have. I love mm. the public speaking now. And, of course, when you're with a live audience, it's always very different because yeah, yeah. you of the audience, you know, the, the enthusiasm in the room and the atmosphere and everything is just electric. So yeah. I get a little bit down and dirty sometimes, you know, and tell them different yeah. But I save that for the live ones because it always gets some cracking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> always those little hidden experiences that really get the lift the bar or lower the bar, should I say? Yeah. Well, we've um we've had to postpone our girls with hammers conference as we talked about before, but we're we're still um intending to and looking forward to yeah, having yeah. you come uh, uh, when when we can finally get back on get back on track. Right. But uh, we can't wait for your little stories. I've I've heard a few, you know, by being dragged by your legs as a prostitute. But anyway, we'll leave that yeah, for the conference. Yeah. Farting yeah. <laughs> as a prostitute. That was a wonderful experience. A farting. Yeah, I'll leave that for the live. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. It turned out a jolly good night. So it's marvellous what a fart can do. <laughs> Oh my god! Um, now, so this book, um, you—I I read that you're working on another one. I am. I am with another author this time. Um, I'm actually—I've got a ghostwriter to write it. It's going to be more in depth of my childhood my yep. experiences, and also what's happened to me since the book has been out. And yeah. um, I got—I went in for my lung surgery, and I was lucky to live. And um, it took me 12 months to get over that. In the meantime, I got embezzled a lot of money out of the business and um, I've survived that. We're now well and truly in the black. And, you know, the things that could have knocked me out over the years have been amazing. Mm -hmm. um, but I've still got up and made it happen somehow. And I'm no fantastic businesswoman, I can tell you now. I'm more of the soft approach. You know, like I feel sorry for people and cut the price so that they can afford it, whereas now I've got people that get KPIs, get it going, and it's better for the business in the long term. Yeah. You know yeah. I mean, so business is business. Well, it's going to be, um, well, yes, and you've got an, an impeccable reputation too, and, you know, and the way you treat people is just uh, is just a credit to you. Like, 
going into those sort of situations and, and putting the person first, you know, and dealing with them emotionally before you even start cleaning, you know, that's, I think that's a huge credit. To I think it's to important me. to go in there and make them feel that they're not alone. I never used to go in there, even with my lungs, with a mask on or gloves or anything like that. And I'd be sitting on stained linen or shitty atmosphere or something like that. But I always had to make them feel that they were having a connection with a person so I could get the best story out of them to see how we're going to handle the job. And mm. that to me was the connection that we needed to have yeah. to make the business a success. But mm. I was to say to them, I don't come in here with PPE because I want to feel like we need to connect and I'll always be there for you, but my staff have to use PPE. And yeah. so that sets them up for the job to go ahead to be able to get that done. But I never, mm. ever put myself in that position. Mm. I wanted to make them feel that they could connect with me at any time. And it'd be many a times we would hug or we'd cry or we'd whatever. But that's part of being a chameleon mm. to get into Mr. and Mrs. Poor to Mr. and Mrs. Rich or whatever the circumstances are. You have to mimic them to be able to get in, in touch with them. Do you know what I mean? Because mm, yeah, that's what they yeah. know and that's how they live. So if we can't be like them for a short time to be able to get the best out of them, to help them along their journey, what are we there for? We're not mm. going to tell them how to live because I wouldn't like anyone telling me how to live. You know, yeah, uh, it's yeah. a suggestion thing. We might give them a few suggestions and say, well, now what one would you pick? That one. Oh, that's the best idea. I'm glad you come up with that. You know, and they feel mm. empowered. They feel like they're, they're, they're the captain of the ship and that's how it needs to be, you know. Mm. I will be the devil's advocate and go, you know, like 70 pairs of jeans is only seven days a week, you know, like this <laughs> wow. is down, you know. So, like, we work on it like that and quite often we'll get to a stage where we've done the cull and then they're starting to feel relieved. They've got the weight off their shoulders and they go, well, let's go through another coal. I'm sure we can take it about a bit further. But then that's their decision. And that's mm. good when we know that we're getting that result. So that's they're, they're amazing skills, you know, and you can't just, you, you don't get them out of a book. You know, that, no. that's life yeah. that's taught yeah. you that. It amazing is life. Stuff. And I'm, I'm, I have no regrets as to my life in any shape or form. It's what's made me now. It's what's made yeah. me proud of who I am now. And I can hold my head up high regardless of whether I'm transgender. Even though I don't see myself as transgender, I see myself as Sandra. Nothing more, nothing less. Mm. So this podcast is about people sort of just backing themselves and having a crack. Now, you've done that. I can't... Uh, a countless amount of times and every time we're talking you come up tell me another new story it's kind of like my god how many times have you gotten off the bench but what advice would you give to someone who wants to you know change this a bit you know to follow their dreams and change their situation so that they can see you know better self-worth well i think you've got to believe in yourself and that's a very hard thing to do and it's mm. dissecting yourself down to the most minimalist point and saying, like, I often do a for and against page on something yeah, when I'm deciding yeah. what I want to do. But knowing in the back of my mind that I am the most powerful person to be able to do that. My mind is the most creative thing that I've got. And I can say a joke to you and you'd laugh your tits off. 
then I could turn around and tell you something really sad and you'd cry your eyes out. That's how quickly the mind can change. So if you can change your mind that quickly, we are in power to possess that mind. You've just got to believe in yourself hard enough and long enough and know that this is what you want to do. And yes, you will have hurdles on the way, but always look at your life as a half glass full rather than a glass half empty. Because if you start on a positive note, there's more chance you'll get there than bringing the negativity in. So I believe you're as powerful as your mind. Get up there, go for your goals, believe in them, treat people good along the way because you don't know whether you're going to meet them when you're coming back down again. So, you know, you need to always have respect and courtesy for other people, but also have in mind what it is you want to achieve and where you want to go. And just believe in yourself and don't allow the criticism to get you down. People will criticise you uphill and down dale, but they don't know the real story because only you know the real story. Only you can guide your own directive. So you've got to be strong powerful, believe in yourself and don't let that mind be bent by other people's criticism because they really don't know. They know Jack. <laughs> good advice. Bloody good advice. Oh, right. Well, where can we find you? Um, well, people can either email me at sandra at stcservices.com.au. Yeah. Um, keynote speakers, use me as a speaker. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, so I just, I answered every medium because they're the people that want to connect. If people want to connect, I'm not going to knock them back. You know, the only thing I do get a bit funny about is when guys come on and they go, oh, hi, beautiful. That's the note. <laughs> Hang up. Hey, <laughs> honey, I know what I look like. I've got mirrors. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. And you can also be, uh, you've also got a website, which is um, sandrapankhurst.com dot au yep. and on facebook it's sandra pankhurst dash the trauma cleaner and linkedin just sandra pankhurst and instagram it's pankhurst underscore the underscore trauma underscore underscore cleaner but i'm going to put all these in the show notes anyway That's so. the book there there's a book. <laughs> and if you get so if you get a chance to read that, guys, please do. It's the um just called the Trauma Cleaner. And it is uh Hi, Sarah Krasnerstein. Krasnerstein. Yep. I don't have it in front of me and I wasn't game to say her last name. So thank you for that. And it's um it is a book. I tell you what, it's uh it blows your blows your mind so um as i said i've i've tried to read it five or six times and i keep getting a chapter in at a time and then ball my bloody eyes out but um well, you're no different um, to a lot of my friends because they can't read it they said look sandra we know you as you we find this a bit too heavy going to yeah. you got to relate to we love you for you not for the backstory yeah. so they find it very difficult to read yeah so, um this is why um, I want to put a little bit more a softer experience in, but also my experiences and also what's happened to me since the book and how yeah. I've flourished as a public speaker and how I love it so much. It's yeah. been a new career in my late age. You know yeah. what I mean? And people need to hear it. People need to hear your story. It's 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 a it's a fascinating story, and you bring so much hope to people. You know, because look what I've been through, and I'm still coming out positive, and I, you know, I still love people, and you know, it's uh, people need to hear that. You know, and I think that you you're a great advocate for just sharing that kind of story. I think it's fantastic. And we all need the human touch. 
Yes. You always need to have that human recommendation, you know, that feeling that goes with the community, that feeling that belongs. We all fit in cogs in the community yeah. and that's where we need to be. This has been so sad with the COVID experience. I think it's really brought it to the fore how much we really need to have other people around yeah. us because we will suffer with a lot of mental health issues. Yeah. We will suffer with another lot of ball game problems. But hopefully if we all pull together and do the right thing, I'm really against these anti-maskers and all these conspiracy theory people. I think, you know, we live in a community, live by the community rules yeah. and we'll get out of this shit sooner than later. Yeah, but we do it. have problems with our governments as well. So they need to tidy themselves up before we slap them around the face. <laughs> I agree. I think there's huge problems with the government, but I think at the end of the day, no matter where that where this came from, no matter what's, it doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. The point is, we need to work together, and we need to yeah. stick together, and we need to care about each other. And I think there's that's that's the bottom line is we just need to care about each other. If we lose the fact of being able to care. What are we as human beings? What are we? Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, like we we're going to be like a machine, a computer. Yeah. We turn yeah. off, we turn on. We don't want to be like that. We want to be caring, sharing human beings that care for each other and look out for each other. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that also comes at a price because you have to work on it. It doesn't come that easy. Yeah. You know, I've got front and back neighbours here and we're like gold and mm. I couldn't have got this anywhere else. But we worked at it, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because we're all from three completely different walks of life. We get on like a house on fire. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's just you have to put the energy in to create what you want back in life. Yep, you do. Yes, you absolutely do. What you focus on, you get. And that's yes. it. That's all there is to it, good yep. or bad. And exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Well, Sandra, thank you so much for this conversation. I thank absolutely, oh, it's been amazing. And um, I can't wait to share it. And I can't wait to actually get you up here in person. And uh, hopefully, hopefully next year, I hope we're not in this pickle in for, for two more years. But <laughs> I think I'll do the nutter job by then. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for sharing your story and, and, uh, and bringing so much, well, so much uh, fascination, but also so much joy and love, you know, to the program and that's, um, to the podcast. And I truly appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. And, it's been my pleasure and I really look forward to meeting your community up there in South Gippsland. Just Gippsland. We, we don't, Gippsland. Yeah, not the South. They're not coming. No, we're going to keep... Oh, no, I'm only joking. We're not letting the infantry in. <laughs> no, no, some of them can come. We'll have anyone, anyone. Just book tickets, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much. And, um, my pleasure, darling. You have a lovely afternoon. The sun's out here shining. Yeah, it is here too. Beautiful. Yes, so this, we're blessed. We're blessed. Yeah, we are. All right. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure, darling. You take care. You too. Bye, everyone. Ta-da. Holy dooly, guys. How was that? What a life. You know, it's it's almost unimaginable that one person can, you know, live through so much adversity and so many trials and so many challenges and it and, and still come out with such a great attitude and you, you just the, the care and compassion and the nurturing that she gives to people, you know, and the love and respect. It's 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 incredible. I like I said in there and I I'm not proud to say it, but you know, if, if I'd had been through all those challenges, I'm not sure I'd be so kind, you know, but she's just one, one hell of a woman. And, you know, to be a child of seven 
and to be told that you're not wanted and you know to be kicked out to a backyard shed and and to not be fed and I you know my heart bleeds and you know I've had so much trouble reading her book but um anyway what an incredible person so and talk about getting off the bench in you know so many so many areas and so many situations so guys if you know if you sort of got a little thing that's troubling you like oh but I'm a little bit challenged by this I don't think I can do it you know maybe think back to Sandra's story and think well hell you know she can she can get through things and get off the bench in extreme circumstances and overcome extreme adversity you, you know maybe maybe you can too so I'll leave you thinking about that again I want to thank you for joining me and for your continued support and it really does mean the world to me okay I'm going to catch you next week see ya hey thanks for joining me it really does mean the world to me now if you or somebody you know is doing amazing things make sure you send me an email to info at getoffthebench.com.au that's info at getoffthebench.com.au otherwise head on over to my website at kerenvaughan.com and tinker around there a bit and send me a message. Okay, catch you next week.